Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Physiology by Physio, which is the newest podcast from your friends at Inside the Boards. So today we have an episode that'll focus on the RAS axis and some of the other aspects of renal physiology. So with this one, we jump into a discussion of RAS right away. So if you need a quick refresher on the structure of the nephron or stuff like that, then I'd recommend a quick Google Images search before you start this episode. Throughout the episode, we have a bunch of great practice questions sprinkled in from the guys at Physio, and I think it's going to be a great one. So let's get started. So what's the purpose of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? It's a multi-organ mechanism that helps to maintain and regulate blood volume and pressure. So what are the main components of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? Well, first we have renin. So renin is the first part of the axis, and as the name implies, renin is a protein produced by the renals, or the kidneys. So here's a question. Where specifically in the kidney is renin made? Renin is made by the juxtaglomerular cells. Thankfully, they have an intuitive name, juxtaglomerular, or near the glomerulus, specifically in the walls of the afferent arteriole. So the juxtaglomerular cells produce renin and secrete it into the blood. And what is renin's function? Renin is actually a protease that converts the hormone precursor angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. And angiotensinogen is produced by the liver. And after renin converts angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1 in the blood, the angiotensin 1 will be converted to the fully active hormone, angiotensin 2. The enzyme that converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 is creatively called angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE, which can be found in the vascular endothelial cells of the lung, but also in renal epithelial cells. So after ACE makes angiotensin 2, the angiotensin 2 will exert many effects on the body, including aldosterone production by the adrenal cortex, specifically in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex. So that's the basic axis. Renin is produced by the JG cells. Renin then converts angiotensinogen from the liver into angiotensin 1. Then ACE in the lung converts angiotensin 1 to the highly active angiotensin 2. And to round out the axis, as a part of its activity, angiotensin 2 promotes aldosterone production in the adrenals. Now let's drill down on the components of the axis a little bit more. So we said that the JG cells produce renin, and this mechanism is regulated by several signals. So can you tell me any of the regulators of renin production? Well, there's a few that I'm going to focus on here. Uh, the macula densa, uh, blood pressure in the afferent arteriole, local action of the hormones angiotensin II and ANP, and the sympathetic nervous system. But we'll take these one at a time. So first up, the macula densa. We said earlier that the JG cells are, well, juxtaglomerular, uh, but these cells are also in very close approximation to cells in the distal convoluted tubule. A subset of those DCT cells that jut up against the JG cells are called the macula densa. When the macula densa slash distal convoluted tubule uh, senses low sodium chloride in the tubule, that serves as a signal of decreased renal blood flow. And in response to this signal, the macula densa triggers the release of mediators like nitric oxide and prostaglandins. 
But remember why we're doing this in the first place, to produce renin so that we can produce angiotensin 2 and aldosterone. Angiotensin 2 and aldosterone help to preserve blood volume by increasing salt and water reabsorption and help to increase blood pressure. So it makes sense that renin would be regulated by low sodium chloride in the distal tubule. The nitric oxide and prostaglandins act in a paracrine fashion on the JG cells. Remember that the macula densa cells and JG cells are right up against each other. So these paracrine signals promote renin release from the JG cells, thereby activating the RAS axis. In contrast, high levels of sodium chloride delivery to the macula densa will inhibit the release of renin by promoting the release of paracrine signals like adenosine and thromboxane. This is often referred to as tubuloglomerular feedback. So adenosine and thromboxane inhibit the release of renin and promote vasoconstriction of the afferent arteriole, thereby limiting renal blood flow. So the kidney is saying to itself, all right, we have lots of sodium chloride in the distal tubule, which means that we probably have enough blood flow. So it slows down blood flow by constricting the afferent arteriole. And vice versa is true with low sodium chloride delivery. It's an indication of poor renal perfusion. Okay, so we said that the macula densa regulates renin release by sensing sodium chloride delivery and then releasing paracrine signals to increase or decrease renin exocytosis from the JG cells. The next mechanism to discuss is renal arterial pressure itself, uh, but this one will be quicker. So if afferent arterial pressure is low, would you expect renin secretion to be high or low? You would expect it to be high. This is a simple feedback mechanism, right? With low pressure, the kidney senses poor perfusion and therefore wants to activate RAS to raise blood pressure. So in contrast, when pressure is high, there's a reflex by the afferent arterial to vasoconstrict and thereby normalize renal blood flow. This mechanism is referred to as the, the myogenic hypothesis. The name isn't as important as understanding that the kidneys have autoregulatory mechanisms to maintain consistent blood flow because their filtering role is so important for bodily homeostasis. So to review, those autoregulatory mechanisms include uh, salt sensing by the macula densa and the myogenic hypothesis where the afferent arteriole can constrict in response to high pressure. Okay, so the macula densa and renal arterial pressures regulate renin release. Next, let's discuss the effects of hormones, specifically angiotensin II and ANP. So will these hormones promote or inhibit release of renin by the JG cells? They both inhibit renin release. So angiotensin II inhibiting renin release just makes intuitive sense, right? Uh, as a negative feedback mechanism for the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. The products of the system will help to slow down further activation of the axis. But ANP, or atrial natriuretic peptide, requires a little more explanation. So where is ANP produced? It's produced in the atria of the heart in response to elevated blood volume and atrial stretch. So when we're volume overloaded, the atrial natriuretic peptide helps us to diurese off some of the extra fluid. Hence, this relationship between ANP and renin makes sense. We don't want RAS activation promoting fluid retention at the same time that ANP is trying to diurese off the extra fluid. So ANP inhibits renin release, and so does angiotensin II. Okay, so we've discussed the macula densa, renal arterial pressures, and hormones like angiotensin II and ANP as regulators of renin production. The last regulator of renin release that I'll focus on here is sympathetic nervous system activation. 
So what kind of sympathetic receptors do the JG cells have that allow them to respond to sympathetic nervous system activation? Well, they have beta-1 receptors. So the release of catecholamines will activate these beta-1 receptors. And will that increase or decrease renin release? Well, catecholamines like epinephrine and norepinephrine increase renin release. Hence, sympathetic nervous system activation will promote renin release and thereby raise blood pressure. And that's actually why we can use beta blockers to control blood pressure, because we're blocking those beta-1 receptors on the JG cells, and thereby inhibiting renin release. But I should mention here that beta blockers aren't usually first-line antihypertensives, because they're not as efficacious as other drug classes like calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs. This is reflected by the JNC8 guidelines, which endorse the use of those drugs, uh, and also the use of thiazides for blood pressure control. However, if the patient also has heart failure or a history of coronary artery disease, then a beta blocker may be useful for double coverage of uh, hypertension and their other disease, but beta blockers aren't the best choice solely for hypertension management. So to summarize, renin release from the JG cells is tightly regulated. We discussed four mechanisms of control, which were the macula densa, renal arterial pressures, hormones like angiotensin II and ANP, and the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, as a fun fact, renin release is actually the rate-limiting step of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, so it makes sense that we would want to tightly regulate it by multiple mechanisms, much like other rate-limiting steps in other pathways. So that was a pretty deep dive on the regulation of renin. Up next, I'm going to focus on the next major product of the axis, angiotensin II. So as the name implies, angiotensin II promotes constriction of blood vessels, specifically arteriolar vasoconstriction. And why is that important? Well, remember that the arterioles are the resistance vessels under autonomic control that change their diameter. Vessel size is the most important determinant of resistance to flow, and the arterioles are the major site of resistance in the arterial system, and therefore are important in determining blood pressure. Hence, angiotensin II helps to raise blood pressure by promoting vasoconstriction, in addition to its other effects. And as a fun fact, angiotensin II is actually the most potent endogenous vasoconstrictor that we know of. Alright, so angiotensin II promotes arteriolar vasoconstriction. We also said that at the adrenal glands, angiotensin II promotes the production of aldosterone. But what about its effects on blood flow in the kidney? So angiotensin II promotes constriction of the efferent arteriole, and this is actually a good point to briefly introduce the concept of GFR. So remember that the main role of the kidney is to filter unwanted stuff out of the blood and put it into the urine for excretion. So where in the nephron does filtration occur? Well, it occurs in the glomerulus of Bowman's capsule. So in Bowman's capsule, an afferent arteriole carrying arterial blood for filtration enters then it bunches up into a tuft that we call the glomerulus, and then it exits as the efferent arteriole. And at the glomerulus, some of the plasma is filtered. And what about the structure of the glomerulus allows the plasma to be selectively filtered? Well, we talked about this last time when we discussed the different layers of the filtration barrier. There's the fenestrated endothelium, which allows plasma to pass through but not cells like red blood cells. And there's also the glomerular basement membrane and podocytes, which help to make the filtration more selective, preventing things like albumin from passing into the filtrate. So that's the basics of filtration at the glomerulus. 
But what does that have anything to do with angiotensin 2? How does angiotensin 2 affect the rate of filtration? Well, angiotensin 2 increases the rate of filtration. And how does it do that? Well, like we said earlier, it promotes vasoconstriction of the efferent arteriole. And remember that the efferent arteriole is at the distal end of Bowman's capsule. So clamping down on the efferent arteriole will create back pressure, basically increased hydrostatic pressure at the glomerulus. And if there's increased hydrostatic pressure, that favors filtration, right? So hence, angiotensin II increases GFR by constricting the efferent arteriole. Okay, hey guys, it's Greg again from Inside the Boards, and I'd like to give a quick plug for our sponsor this week, which is Physio. So a couple of years ago, Physio burst onto the scene of medical education with their physiology course, which proved that they kind of know what they're doing as medical educators. And since then, they've just continued to make improvements and produce more valuable content for their subscribers. Not only have they produced physiology content that they fashioned in kind of a similar manner to the Pathoma whiteboard style lectures, but they've also produced a course for biochem and biostats and even more. And they're currently working on a high yield micro course for the boards, which they fashioned after the sketchy style. So I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing at Physio, and I love the idea of having Pathoma-style content, conceptual learning, integrated together with sketchy-style memorization tools, and it's all housed together in one sleek platform on Physio. Oh, and did I also mention that they also produced a textbook that they continually update and you get free with your subscription? So there's no need to furiously write down notes. It's already written down for you in a nice and neat manner, so you can just kind of go with the flow of the videos. Anyways, I'm really excited to be working with the guys from Physio on this collaborative podcast. Now, I want you to stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about a discount code for your Physio subscription that we at Inside the Boards were able to secure for you, the listener. But for now, let's get back to the show. Okay, guys, so I hope my introduction to the topic of the RAS axis and GFR was helpful. Now, we'll transition to our physio content for the rest of this episode. They'll present you with a bunch of practice questions that'll help to reinforce the concepts that we've discussed thus far. So let's do a practice question to apply this. So the question is, in a patient with new hyperaldosteronism, what would happen to the tubular glomerular feedback? Okay, so now let's say that the cause of the hyperaldosteronism is an aldosterone-secreting tumor from the adrenal gland. The patient has high aldosterone being secreted into the serum. With this high aldosterone, the patient would be reabsorbing a lot of isotonic fluid from the collecting duct due to increased sodium and water reabsorption. As a result of this increased water reabsorption, the patient would develop increased blood pressure. This increased blood pressure would mean increased blood flowing through the glomerulus, which would mean more urine. Therefore, there would be more delivery of sodium and chloride to the macula densa. The increased fluid flow to the macula densa would cause it to decrease its paracrine signaling to the juxtaglomerular cells. Thus, renin secretion would decrease. In other words, tubuloglomerular feedback from the macula densa to the juxtaglomerular cells would decrease in a patient with hyperaldosteronism. And this helps the kidneys maintain a normal GFR during a state of high aldosterone. So now let's do a quick practice question. What would meloxicam do to the GFR? 
Well, recall that cyclooxygenase enzymes are responsible for synthesizing prostaglandins. And meloxicam is an NSAID, and this results in a decrease in prostaglandin synthesis. Recall that prostaglandins normally dilate the afferent arterio. So decreased prostaglandin synthesis would result in a relative vasoconstriction of the afferent arterio. So this would lead to decreased GFR. Now let's talk about dopamine. So dopamine is secreted by the proximal convoluted tubule and it can be administered and it can come from other areas. And what it does is it will dilate the afferent and the efferent arterioles. And this will increase the renal blood flow. And it's important to know that this occurs at a low dose because at a higher dose, dopamine will actually cause constriction of the vessels. So if a patient was administered a low dose of dopamine, what would this do to the GFR? Dopamine will dilate the afferent and the efferent arteriole. This will allow more blood to flow through the kidney. However, since the efferent arteriole isn't constricted more than the afferent, you will not have an increase in GFR. So, if a low dose of dopamine is administered, GFR will be unchanged. Okay, so let's say there's a patient with chronic anxiety. What would happen to this patient's aldosterone level? Okay, recall that the juxtaglomerular cells, these have beta-1 receptors, which are sympathetic receptors. It's also important to know that anxiety and stress stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, as you've heard, fight or flight. So we'll draw a spinal cord real quick, and then some very simplified sympathetic fibers reaching this beta-1 receptor. So if a person is chronically anxious, then this sympathetic response will be heightened, and the juxtaglomerular cells will be stimulated to secrete more renin. And high renin, of course, leads to high aldosterone, which answers our question. So chronic anxiety can lead to high aldosterone. Well, let's do another question. Let's say there's a patient with heart failure. What would happen to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system in this patient? Well, if you have heart failure, you're going to have decreased cardiac output. And so that means there would be decreased blood flow or decreased blood pressure going through the afferent arteriole. So the juxtaglomerular cells would begin to secrete renin. And renin, of course, would lead to increased angiotensin 2, which would lead to increased aldosterone. Another way to ask a question like this is to ask what would happen to fluid reabsorption from the nephron in a patient with heart failure? Well, increased angiotensin 2 and increased aldosterone would mean increased fluid reabsorption from the proximal tubule and collecting duct respectively. Therefore, a patient with heart failure would have increased fluid reabsorption from the nephron, so they would have increased volume. Okay, so here's another question. What would happen to the GFR in a patient with renal artery stenosis? Okay, so let's draw a kidney really quick. We've got the renal artery leading into the kidney. And if this artery was stenotic, then there would be decreased blood flow to the kidney. Decreased blood flow would mean decreased filtration of the plasma and therefore decreased GFR. To extend the question, what would happen to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system in a patient with decreased GFR? Well, 
decreased GFR would mean decreased urine flow to the macula densa. And this decreased flow to the macula densa would cause them to stimulate the juxtaglomerular cells to secrete renin. So renin would be increased. So in answer to our question, in a patient with decreased GFR, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system would increase. Now this particular patient had renal artery stenosis. However, it's important to recognize that this constellation of findings can be found in any condition that decreases blood flow to the kidneys. For example, if a patient was severely dehydrated, there would be less blood flow through the renal artery. So I'll just write decreased blood pressure. So this condition would likewise cause decreased GFR and increased renin and stimulate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So let's say there's a patient taking loop diuretics. What would the loop diuretics cause to happen with the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and why? Okay, so here we have the nephron and we have the thick ascending limb. And the thick ascending limb has a sodium potassium chloride co-transporter. Now a loop diuretic will actually block this channel. So that sodium, potassium, and chloride will stay in the urine. So this initially would cause an increase in the sodium and chloride reaching the macula densa. So this would cause a decrease in renin. However, the loss of sodium in the urine would mean that there is a loss of water as well because water follows sodium. So there's more to know about how loop diuretics affect the function of the nephron. For now, it's just important to know that with this water loss, the patient eventually loses enough water that flow through the glomerulus actually decreases and therefore GFR decreases. And this decreased GFR means that there would be less fluid flow and urine flowing to the macula densa so that sodium chloride delivery would be decreased. Therefore, renin secretion would actually be increased. There would be more stimulation of the juxtaglomerular cells to secrete renin. In summary, loop diuretics cause enough water loss that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system will be stimulated. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited-time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. And now let's finish out the rest of the episode. All right, so I hope those quick questions were helpful. Now I've got my own board-style practice question for you to round out the episode. So a 55-year-old man came to his family doctor's office because of a cough for the past two weeks. He denies any fever, sputum production, or sick contacts. His past medical history is significant only for mild hypertension, which is treated with lisinopril. He has a five-pack-year history of smoking and works as a ski instructor. Family history is significant for lung cancer in both his mother and father, which prompted the patient to quit smoking 10 years ago. Which of the following explains his cough symptoms? Is it A, hyponatremia, B, hyperkalemia, C, metabolic acidosis, D, metabolic alkalosis, 
or E, Brady Kynan? And the correct answer is E, Brady Kynan. So most people probably immediately recognize the answer to this question because it's just one of those things that's taught at most medical schools. Uh, but honestly, after hanging in there for this long, I just wanted to give you guys a softball on this one. So the exact mechanism isn't fully worked out yet, but bradykinin does seem to contribute to bronchospasm and cough associated with ACE inhibitors. Uh, I should also note that increased substance P also contributes to this too. Both bradykinin and substance P are degraded by ACE. So when you give an ACE inhibitor, their levels can rise and cause dry cough. Uh, if you wanted to switch the patient's medications, then you could try an ARB, considering how similar they are to ACE inhibitors. But instead of reducing angiotensin II levels, ARBs simply block the angiotensin receptor, which is ironically referred to as the angiotensin receptor 2 type 1, or AT1 for short. I know, how confusing is that? But anyways, dry cough is a very common but not too serious side effect of ACE inhibitors, which is at least in part mediated by increased levels of bradykinin and substance P. In contrast, a rare but very serious side effect of ACE inhibitors and ARBs is angioedema, which can threaten the airway. The other answer choices in this question were just distractors, but they should remind you that ACE inhibitors can mildly lower blood sodium and elevate blood potassium. However, those changes wouldn't explain his dry cough. And guess what? That's it for this episode. So thanks for listening. I hope my explanations made sense. I hope you learned something, and I look forward to next time.